And now on this episode of Miami Mic'd Up, I welcome in someone who has actually been on my list since the day we started this podcast. I'm very excited to have him on here finally. An MLB writer for ESPN.com. He also hosts Baseball Tonight Live very often. It's June Lee. June, thanks so much for uh, taking some time here to join me on Miami Mic'd Up. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, of course. Uh, Before we get into baseball, uh, I do have to ask you, what's something recently outside of your workplace, outside of your job that has brought you joy? Oh, man. Uh, My family is probably always the number one answer to that question. Um, They they always just bring me joy and find ways to cheer me up just through their unconditional love and support. Um, Other than that, let's see. I watched Vertigo again a couple nights ago with my girlfriend. She had just watched it for the first time uh, and watching her react to the twist was like one of the most entertaining. I don't know if you've seen Vertigo. I haven't seen it, which is why now I'm excited to not to know that there's a twist, but I'm excited about the prospect of this because even though I haven't (laughs) seen it, I like the idea of watching someone watch something. Yes. uh, And it is, you know, it's an old Alfred Hitchcock movie. It's my personal favorite movie of all time. Um, So I would highly recommend if you haven't seen Vertigo uh, to go see it. Um, That was something that brought me joy. And then, uh, you know, one of the members of BTS, J-Hope, just released his first like post BTS hiatus solo project. Um, It's kind of like a grungy hip hop album. Um, And uh, that also brought me a lot of joy. So I'm trying (laughs) to, you know, I'm always trying to find joy in the small things. Those those are both great. First of all, Nothing I love more than introducing somebody to something that I love and then watching them digest it. Yes. Like 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 showing someone new music or new TV show or a new movie. And really the fun in that is not watching whatever it is. It's watching them watch it and and praying that they find it as <laughs> funny as you do or as brilliant as you do and hoping that you don't feel like a crazy person on the back end. Right. So like I'm, I'm an enormous Star Wars fan. And when my girlfriend and I started dating, we started we watched Star Wars for the first time. She had never seen it. And I remember it, it was like the Ted Mosby scene in How I Met Your Mother, <laughs> where I'm just like praying, yes. just like praying that she enjoys it. Yeah. And thankfully she did, although she came out of the entire experience with her takeaway being that Revenge of the Sith was her, was her favorite movie because of how dark it was. And I was like, whoa, OK, interesting perspective. See, this these is are like, things. This is like seeing things with fresh eyes, you know? That's exactly what I was going to say is it's like you're dumping somebody in there and it's like, okay, someone who has no biases going in, I'm just going to ingest all of it right now in the span of a couple of weeks. I did that actually at one point with all the Harry Potter movies because I have this whole, I had this whole thing with Harry Potter where as a young kid, uh, I was so competitive that when all of the kids in class were reading Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and I wasn't reading it the fastest, I like fake read in class just <laughs> to be first. Just it, it says a lot about the person I've ultimately become. Uh, and I would do that. And, and then when I was kind of a slow reader growing up, like I wasn't as good of a reader as I was when I was a little kid, forever I blamed the Harry Potter books because I was like, it's their fault. They weren't interesting enough. I, you know, I was a good reader. And so in turn, didn't watch all of the movies growing up. And so my fiance is a like, Die hard Harry Potter person. So once early in our relationship, we sat in the span of about yeah, like four or five days, just watched all of the movies sequentially. And now I just recently finished reading them for the first time at 
27 years old. So they're everybody has books. their different perspectives. They're incredible books. Yeah, of course they are. They're amazing. I love those books. Oh, and then also I did want to say, what was the other thing that we had brought up? Oh, BTS. Because I know that you're a giant BTS fan. I have seen some of your uh, commentary behind the scenes from like days. Uh, I remember there was one specific clip uh, of like a behind the scenes for uh, Around the Horn where you were talking about BTS. And the thing that I believe you said was that they are essentially the Beatles. And I just want for an audience that potentially does not know either much about BTS or doesn't listen to BTS music. I want to give you just the, the runway here before we even get to any of your baseball knowledge to just wax poetic about BTS and the incredible band. I know that they're now doing solo projects. So, so their impact and like the music that they made. Oh my God. I mean, we could go on for hours about, yeah, I know we could. Um, I, well, I think BTS is fascinating for a couple of reasons, just because I think that they're indicative of the larger scale globalization of culture where, you know, I think there's been a lot of conversation over the course of the last couple of years that there is no monoculture anymore. I actually think that's wrong. I think that there is a larger global monoculture where it's much harder to break in to become something that everyone is talking about. Um, and I think one of the things that is part of this global monoculture is BTS. Squid Game, I think, is part of that. You yeah. know, the Marvel movies, I think, is part of that. Star Wars is part of that. There are a handful of things, I think, are huge enough in scale to break through on that level. And, you know, the fact that there is a global boy band that is singing in another language right. and is as big as they are, I think, is fascinating. Um, and I think is also indicative of the larger way that the Eastern and Western worlds are kind of coming together through their shared love of capitalism. So there's one thing there. Um, I think there's a larger phenomenon happening with BTS where they just, I mean, they just make good music. Right. Um, and they're an evolution in the K-pop industry. You know, I've been listening to K-pop since I was a kid. So I, I listened to some like really old school stuff that like my parents used to listen to, um, have a little bit of a gap in the, in the 2010s. Um, I came back around as BTS was kind of, was blowing up. Uh-huh. And, you know, I remember as young as when I was like in high school, you know, middle school, my, my parents would talk about how they would drop in English lyrics into their song because they wanted to break into the American market. And it was starting to happen... I think in the early 2010s where you saw bands like Red Velvet and Big Bang start to kind of break through in the American marketplace, but they didn't quite break through into the mainstream zeitgeist. Like they're always kind of bubbling a little bit under. Sure. And, you know, I think part of it is that the world wasn't ready. But I also think that what BTS has done that other groups haven't done is they've been able to find the common thread that unites the Eastern world and the Western world in terms of like themes and I think we see that in a lot of the pop culture that crosses over today in terms of, you know, I think Squid Game speaks to this, but just economic inequalities, societal inequalities. Yeah. And that's basically the basis of a lot of the lyrics of BTS's music. And, you know, I think that's a message that's resonated across the world when people like look at the translations of the lyrics, like it really resonates with them on top of just like being very diverse in kind of the, the catalog that they have in terms of hip hop music, pop music. Um, you know, they, they kind of hit the entire spectrum of music. There's always something for everyone to listen to if you're interested. Uh, and then I think there's also just like the fact that they're like seven good looking dudes. And yeah. like, um, they put on an absolute spectacle, spectacle of a concert. And, um, you know, I, I think the thing that jumped out for me is that I, I just recently went back over to Korea, sure. um, to, to visit family. I do that every couple of years. And, uh, 
you know, it was one of the, my, my cousins don't know who LeBron James is. They mm. don't know like a lot about America. They don't know who Kanye West is. Like they don't know a lot of the American mainstream celebrities. Wow. But this was the first time where it's like, I could talk to them about BTS. I could talk to them about Squid Game. I could talk to them How about cool. the Marvel movies. And the world felt a lot smaller. And the funniest part was like, BTS is actually more famous in America than they are in Korea. Like people huh. in Korea don't quite understand the scale of how enormously famous BTS is. Like when their last compilation album proof came out, my girlfriend or I were in Nashville and we we're driving through. I was like, Oh wait, like the album just came out. I want to like pick one of those up. We were in like this, like rural Tennessee ish. And we went to a target and it was like BTS album was there. And I was just like, That's I can't so believe cool. I can pick up a BTS album in the right. south in like in the rural south and like people in korea just they understand that bts is almost extremely famous in korea because they're famous in america but it's huh. it's hard for them to wrap their head around the scale of how famous they are right, like what that like, actually means right what that actually means because they're in like mcdonald's commercials they're you know you walk into the grocery store now like you yeah. can hear bts songs like it's 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 just really wild for me as a korean yeah. american to see a group um, of guys around my age, like being this internationally famous because, you know, if in growing up, like a lot of Asian American media representation was a lot of caricatures. And mm -hmm. there are seven guys who are extremely Korean dudes and they're doing their way in America. And it's, it's very, very impressive and uh, mind blowing to see. I'm so excited that we started here. I'm so glad that this was this wasn't later in the conversation. I'm glad that this you know is how to exactly hit my buns, where we started. Man. You know, I did, you know I exactly how to. I knew what to push. To get me going. I, well, I'm I'm honestly, truthfully, the first time that I listened to BTS music and like a serious. All right, let me sit down and do this. Was after the first time that I heard one of your clips, whether that was the Around the Horn one or one of the other ones. And now this has just made me want to do like a deep dive. Like now I really want to be like, okay. There's a lot of stuff there. I want to even kind of listen. I, I did. I've mentioned it on the show before. In the middle of the pandemic, I was doing this thing where I was going on walks and I was listening every day chronologically to artists. So I was like going, I did it with the Beatles where I like started it, their first album and every day would listen to a different one and get to the end. And it's something I've wanted to get back into doing. And maybe what I'll do is I'll just start with BTS and I'll just go through that that immense catalog and yeah. really see what that sort of evolution was. It's I, I find the whole your point on sort of the way that it, it bridges the gap and makes the world smaller is really so interesting to me and, and so cool. Like we need more things like that that can cross over, um, I guess. Hey, transition, including baseball, huh? Huh? <laughs> All right, so we'll, we will get into some of this baseball stuff here with you, all right? So I'm going to start with the Marlins, and then, and then we'll sort of move from there. Um, we're taping this on Tuesday afternoon, so we will not see how Sandy Alcantara and actually Garrett Cooper fared in the All-Star game uh, in terms of their results. Sandy struck out three guys, and Coop went, you know, one for one with a homer. Let's say that's what happened. Uh, Sandy Alcantara, I was doing the, you know, annoying caping for him on Twitter. Hey, he should be the starter. But one way or another, his first half has been remarkable. Um, and the thing that's been so cool is that he's, you know, he's a workhorse uh, when seemingly the workhorse is out of the game. So what is it about Sandy that impresses you the most, June? Well, I think one of the things that I find fascinating about Sandy's rise is that Sixto was supposed to be that guy. He was. And he, he was supposed to be that guy. And he was the guy that got all that hype coming up. And Sandy is, I mean, Sandy was a pretty hype prospect coming up, but I don't mm -hmm. think he, he was not on the level of six though. And I think the thing that has impressed me is that, um, you know, even with the Marlins kind of being in this weird, like kind of pseudo rebuild place, 
you know, he's a guy who's throwing a lot of innings. He's got 138 innings through 19 games this year. It's kind of a throwback into a different era. That part of partially might be because of circumstance where it's like the Marlins, like they kind of need some innings if they want to win some games. You know, when you have a sub two ERA and you're striking out, you know, 123 guys and, uh, you know, 138 innings, like you might as well ride him. Um, but for me, it is really that I think is the unpredictability of baseball where it's like, you know, you can look at that top prospect list all you want. Um, but until you prove it in the majors, you just never know. And like, you know, Sandy was obviously a super talented guy coming up, but you know, seeing what he's done now, I mean, I have to imagine even a Marlins fans that it has been surprising to see the level, the level of success that he has achieved this early in his, uh, you know, you know, he's still 26 years old right. and, you know, he, he's had, you know, six years in the majors, but for him to kind of make this level of a jump, I think has been, been really, really surprising. Yeah. I think, um, obviously Marlins fans have been excited about Sandy. And I think that the, the thought originally and heck in 2020, it was to win a playoff series. It was Sandy and then Sixto. Um, and Sandy was really only the ace at that point, purely by, not by default, he had earned it at but that point, but only because default. he had been up for longer, right? Like, he was the guy who had already gone through some of the growing pains, and now with Sixto's, you know, injuries that have kept him from from getting there and watching Sandy just grow and grow and grow, it has, I think, been a joy for... Look, I mean, that, his first season with the Marlins was my first season covering the team, and so it's been cool just for me to watch, like, his personal growth on top of the the professional growth there, but another guy who's been wildly impressive for the Marlins and I think is is making names sort of, you know, he's the national face of this team is Jazz Chisholm Jr. Um, and he's really emerging into one of those fun young faces of baseball. So what do you find unique about Jazz's game and, and how excited are you about players like Jazz with that type of personality as this game sort of moves into the future? I think the thing that really jumps out to me about Jazz is the way that he carries himself differently um, than he probably would if he came up like 10 years ago, yeah. like there's an, there's an unapologeticness. If that's, is that a word? Yeah, that's um, sure. We'll call it a word of, I think it is <laughs> of the way that he carries himself on the field. Like he's, he's jazz Chisholm. Like he came up, he was a rookie. He had blue hair. Mm -hmm. Like uh, he's got the flash. He's got the flare. Like he's doing the Euro step. Like he, he feels very, kind of emblematic of this new generation that has grown up seeing bat flips that has seen kind of the, the half generation ish before that has ushered in this level of character and like style and pizzazz in the game and has kind of taken it and just run with it. And I think that, you know, there's a level of, he needs to be successful in order to kind of be able to justify carrying this level of swag. But I think almost the swag, like the barometer that you need to hit in order to be good to have swag on the baseball field is starting to lower. Like, yeah, it's becoming acceptable to wear all this, you know, wear the chains, you know, be flashy, all this stuff, even though you're not necessarily like a top 10, top 15 type player. Right. I think jazz has a chance of being like one of the best second baseman in baseball at some point. Um, but he also, you know, he, and he's, he has got two, a little bit of a, above two and a half wins above replacement this year. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's not like he's had like a superstar five win, six win season. And he's still carrying himself this way. Like, I think that particular phenomenon about him is very, is very, very interesting. Well, especially I can even, 
go a step toward you talk about sort of generationally in baseball it's also sort of just generationally like for you and i we're both i believe we're the same age you're you're born in 95 94 yes 95 95 yeah so so i'm also born in 95 we're super young millennials right we're on that that borderline oh, really old gen x uh, gen zers well that's the question right that's that's the that's the eternal question i'm asking myself but the point would be either way we see we can see that strict split between like millennial culture and gen z culture and the difference in my view in jazz chisholm being unapologetically himself out there is partially also just gen z being that way about everything and so there is this element of like these are the kids who grew up with phones performing for everything um and there's an element of like i'm just showing up and i'm being me no matter what because everybody's seen it since i'm 12 13 14 years old uh it's, it's kind of cool just to to see the way that he's sort of helping the game grow and some of those other guys like jazz um were involved in the home run derby last night um as I I really enjoyed watching the show uh, that Julio Rodriguez put on and Juan Soto ultimately wins it. Frankly, because we're recording this on Tuesday, we can't react to the All-Star game. I'd love to get reaction to the home run derby. And and what stood out to you about the night that we saw? Well, I, I, I was on Baseball Tonight Live last night in Bristol and the two people that me, Clinton and Phil Murphy had chosen, Clinton and and Phil went with Juan Soto, and I went with Julio Rodriguez just because I thought that this could be a potential coming out stage for Julio. Yep. And the thing that I thought was fascinating watching the video, I mean, just watching him kind of go about doing the derby the way that he did was that he looked at the rule book <laughs> and he saw that we could just pitch, pitch, pitch. And he, him and his coach had the, the, the guy who was pitching to make clearly train on just like yep. firing balls because the, the guy who's throwing wasn't even taking he was a step. machine. Like he, he was just a machine, just throwing darts down the middle of the plate. And I thought that was probably just a byproduct of the new Derby rules and trying to exploit that for a format as much as possible, which uh-huh. you know, I can respect that to a point. Competitive um, nature. Yeah. But it's also, it's also like the guy, I mean, Julio is just perfect for this generation in terms of, the charisma that he brings on the field mm-hmm. and also his playing style, I think is just, is it's, a, it's incredibly adaptive for the modern game. Like right. he he's able to, uh, I mean, he he's the person who I think people expected the Mariners or to, to, he, he was the person that people expected to take the Mariners to the next level this year. Um, and there was an immense amount of pressure, I think on him, um, to be able to perform immediately because he was that difference maker. And I think he's exceeded expectations in a lot of ways to the point oh, where yeah. he might be kind of crawling into that MVP conversation if the Mariners are able to continue sticking it out and are able to you know compete with the Astros in that division, but also like make a run for that wild card. Um, and so for me, Julio is the story. I mean, like the easy story is obviously Juan Sogi, given everything happening with his trade, right. his trade situation and his contract situation fact that he's 23 and he's as good as he is all of that. Uh, But, you know, there is this, like, (laughs) I I, I do think that like we're in the middle of this, like kind of generational tension shift between, um, you know, the slightly older school who kind of paved the way for this gen, this Gen Z generation and Gen Z kind of just definitively declaring that they are here and this is their moment. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's fun to watch these, uh, not only those two guys sort of battle and man, look, 
the Pujols moments were great. Like it was oh, super, super cool to see him out there. And I'm sure as people are listening to this tomorrow morning, they're going to be feeling the same way about the Pujols and Cabrera stuff, you know, during the All-Star game. Um, but to me, something that that has come into mind recently is that, so I believe that the Home Run Derby at this point is the best, like outside of a game all-star I agree. anything. I think that's where we've gotten at this point is that the Home Run Derby is the best. But I, I think it's the main think, event. I, I believe the- that way. Uh, and it's the main event for All-Star Weekend. Like, I feel like it's almost surpassed the All-Star game. But even beyond that, I am I am also of the belief that MLB could take a note from NBA and have a skills challenge. But not the... Yeah, not, I've been saying this for years, okay, too. Okay, great. So, but also a skills challenge in a very silly way is what I'm thinking. Because not just like, hey, who can throw the hardest from shortstop? But like, I want somebody standing in center field and there's a bucket on home plate. And they're just trying to throw into the bucket like when we were kids on a Little League baseball field. Or like there's a game of pepper with hitting coaches playing with infielders up against the back of the wall. Or or even, and this is my, my personal favorite... Did you ever do races from different bases at like the end of practice? So you put totally. half the put half the team on second base, put half the team at home, and all right, go do it by division or by league, and just have these unbelievable events that the players would enjoy. Look at the fun that they have when the home run derby's going on. Well, did you play MVP baseball growing yep. up? Yep. Uh, yes. Of I course. mean, like those those games. Exactly. Like, all the having games the targets there. on the field, getting guys to hit at them, like yep. you know, just a target competition. Like I feel like Ichiro would have been incredible oh. at that. You know, yes. a bunting competition, even though bunts don't really aren't really relevant. Oh, like, but it's still fun. Yeah. Or even just like, you know, having guys. I, I think the bucket idea is a really, really great idea. Um, like, There's a lot of like small granular things in baseball that you can you even even just a race, like seeing mm-hmm. who the fastest guy in baseball is like there's a lot of ways to kind of expand this out and make it much more of a festive thing beyond just the home run derby. All right, we're in. Hopefully these uh, Gen Z guys follow follow our lead and just make it happen themselves. They start pitching this themselves. But I do want to take a step back here and, and know a little bit more about your journey to being here at ESPN. We just sort of, you know, skip past all that. Let, let's take a step back for a second because I find your career arc very, very interesting. And I know you're from Boston. Um, and since we're the same age, I know that you were in elementary school when the Red Sox broke the curse, won the World Series in 2004. And I can only imagine that that's the thing that sent you down this path. So how much did that impact you? So that the first sports team that I followed closely was the 2003 Red Sox. Oh. Um, I got pulled in oh. because of two players. David Ortiz, uh, actually three players. Actually, let's say five players. All right. <laughs> David Ortiz, Manny Ramirez, Nomar Garcia Parra, Pedro Martinez, and Byung-Hyun Kim. Um, okay, you know, there you go. Korean dude on the Red Sox is a submariner. Obviously, he's got the infamous, infamous postseason moments. Yeah. Um, but I remember watching a Red Sox-Yankees game, and Ortiz had a, it was I think it was his first walk-off with the Red Sox in 2003. And after that, I was kind of in. Um, and that year... You know, I was in third grade. It was my first heartbreak seeing Aaron Boone, you know, hit that walk off Homer, um, feeling the pain of the, the 86 years of not <laughs> winning. And the next year after that, they win the world series. And, right. you know, I grew up in an era of Boston sports where everyone was winning. I mean, we yeah, the most I mean, obnoxious- it's been unbelievable. Yeah, we're the most obnoxious generation of sports fans ever because I saw, you know, Tom Brady was the quarterback of the football team I love for two decades. I saw that every single Sunday. Miserable. For, you know, for my entire childhood, you know, the Celtics between KG, Pierce and Garnett, 
uh, or K- KG Pierce and Ray Allen and Rondo and Kendrick Perkins, like those teams, the Bruins with you know, Zidane Ochara and Tim Thomas and Patrice Bergeron and Mark Savard. Like it was impossible to not become a, a massive sports fan. I think the thing that actually separates Boston from every other city in America, and I live in New York now, New York's an incredibly passionate sports town, but New York is a bigger city and there's other things to do. And if you really want to, you can totally not know what's happening with any of the sports teams. Yeah. It is impossible to not know what's happening with any of the sports teams in Boston because it's a much smaller city. There's only four teams and it's just the small talk of everyone at the water cooler. Um, It doesn't matter if you don't care about sports. If you move to Boston, I have so many friends who moved to Boston for college and then became sports fans because it's just like an inherent fabric that ties the city together. How cool. Um, And you know, for me as a first generation American, you know, I moved to the US when I was two months old. I just wanted to make friends. And for me, like the two things that helped me make friends were Boston sports, like talking about what happened with the Sox, Patriots, Red Sox, <laughs> uh, you know, the Celtics or Bruins yeah. or pop culture. Like what, you know, new Kanye Drake album was dropped last night. Like what is, uh, you know, Ariana Grande releasing all that kind of sure, stuff. Like sure. that was kind of what helped me make friends in America, given that I just like, came from a different cultural background. And so for me, like, I think like the part of me that really wanted to have friends just like became the biggest Boston sports expert ever. And then also it was just like, my dad was a big baseball fan, big sports fan in general. And so um, it was something that that I think kind of tied us together as well. So um, that was how I kind of fell into sports. And, you know, you grow up in a market where you have the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, you have two sports radio stations, you have, you know, NBC Sports Boston dedicated to talking about, the daily ins and outs, the ups and downs of these teams. And it just became the thing that I wanted to do once I realized that I was never going to grow past five foot seven and become a pitcher on the Red Sox. Yeah, so well, that's the same realization that I had over here was like, oh, okay, I'm five nine, huh? This isn't this isn't gonna this isn't gonna work out for me. Uh yeah, no, I think um it, it, it's cool to hear sort of the the path that leads you toward understanding, hey, this is what I want to pursue. But then Once you've decided, hey, this is what I'd like to pursue, you're not somebody who's sitting here writing about the ins and outs of every single, you know, maneuver. You're someone who's interested in stuff sort of beyond the ball field, too, right? And so I can imagine that there have been some hurdles into being able to not only write what you want to write about, but also just getting into this industry in in general, right? So what were some of those hurdles like for you early on? I know obviously you're 27 years old. You're still very early in your career, but in the you know first moments of trying to break in, you're here at ESPN now. So so what was that like for you, and and how did you go about it? Yeah, I mean, I was always interested in sports in the way that it explained what was happening in America because I would listen mm. to sports radio, and you would just hear the way that some stories were talked about and the way that. You know, minorities were talked about and you could just get us like the, the way that sports were talked about was so emblematic of the of the state of the country in many ways. And Absolutely. I think it helped me learn about America and the stories that I try to write, whether it's about baseball or, or other sports um, are often emblematic of the way that sports is a mirror on our society. Um Because, you know, I always think about my mom in this regard because you know she doesn't follow sports at all, but I always I always want to be writing stories where I can like tell her what it's about and she can understand um, why I'm thinking about things this way. Love that. Um, and, and so like once I realized that I wasn't going to become a baseball player, uh, I actually had a couple different paths. I had a tech YouTube channel in high school where I was reviewing, you know, 
iPhone cases and headphones and all this other stuff. I had a cousin um, who did the I, same thing. Yeah. And then, you know, and this was in the really early, day, early days of tech YouTube, like a lot right. of the people that I was making videos with are still doing it now and have million subscribers and are doing incredibly well for themselves. I'm still kind of internet buddies with a, with a handful of them. Um, and then, you know, I, and then I was pursuing the kind of the journalism path, did the student newspaper, um, was blogging really, really early on. And I got really lucky in that my baseball teammates dad in high school, he was the sports editor at the Boston Herald. And so I went up to him after practice one day with, you know, my student newspaper clips and a resume that didn't have anything on it. Cause I was 16 years old <laughs> and I just asked him for an opportunity. Um, and so I spent that first summer at the Herald, um, just like taking phone calls at the desk. Oh, and then I started shadowing, um, the Red Sox beat writers in the clubhouse. And I, you know, I was a teenager in there and I was, remember the first time I went into the Red Sox clubhouse, uh, you know, David Ortiz was my childhood hero. And I walk in with Michael Silverman, who was the Red Sox beat writer at the Herald at the time. And Ortiz is the first person that comes up the tunnel and he's just like, Hey, what's up guys. And I feel, I, I felt like I was going to die on the yeah, spot. Like I melted. Course. And then I walked in the Red Sox clubhouse and, and like all of my like childhood heroes in the journalism world and in the sports world from an athlete, they're all in one room. And it was just like, to this day, the most sensory overload I have ever felt in my life. Wow. Um, and uh, it was really, really intimidating, but I kind of, I kind of grew up in, in the clubhouse in that way, like building my confidence, talking to these guys that I definitely put on pedestals at the time and really, really looked up to, um, you know, I, I, I tried to, <laughs> I used to wear like a lot of ties in the clubhouse and like yeah. would dress very for like very formally for my age, just because I wanted people to take me seriously. And right. Of course. So through then I like through the, you know, I started making sources. Like I, I, you know, I did features on Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts and the minor leagues and kind of developed relationships with them. And I just kind of eventually developed enough sourcing where, you know, I was in college, I was still kind of reporting and blogging on the Red Sox for over the monster SB nations, Red Sox blog, um, and, and started doing some freelancing uh, eventually I started my, my freshman year at BU and then I transferred to Cornell and worked on the student newspaper all, all three and a half years of college, um, doing a lot of blogging and freelance writing and, uh, you know, did a lot of, did, did a lot of stuff for, you know, SB nation, did a couple things for the ringer, did stuff for fan graphs and the hardball times was just trying to get as many yeah. reps as possible. You know, the advice that I always got was like, try to create opportunities doing for the thing that you want to do. And so I tried to do as much feature writing as possible. And you know, this come, the tech YouTube stuff kind of comes full circle because the story that eventually got me my first job at Bleacher Report was this freelance story I did for The Ringer about uh, a tech YouTuber, uh, Marquez Brownlee. I had, I had like known Marquez for um, dating back to the tech YouTube days. We were just like kind of peripheral tech, tech internet circles together. Um, and Marquez had had a couple million subscribers. He had just like graduated. He was one of the big tech, uh, biggest tech YouTubers at the time and, and now still. And I did a profile on him and my um, editor at Bleacher Report uh, read that story and reached out to me. And he, he offered me a staff writing job on my last day of exams in college in Unreal. December 2016. And I moved to New York, you know, seven weeks after that and, uh, you know, started my first job at BR, was there for, you know, two years and then went over to ESPN and been there for a little over three now. And this all starts with just approaching someone after baseball practice. Right. Yes. Like that's and that's such a wonderful lesson, though, for anybody who's who's that age. Right. Who's listening to this conversation, like be willing to reach out to people, be willing to put yourself out there, because literally from there, you got your opportunity and you grinded your way through by just working and working and working, doing all of these things. But it takes 
it takes finding a spot to kind of launch from. And that's, yeah. that's, a, that's yeah. an amazing lesson. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing I took away from that, it, it, it taught me extremely early on that I had to be my own biggest advocate and I had to mm. be assertive for what I wanted. Um, I had to ask for what I wanted. And, um, you know, if, if people didn't want to give me that opportunity, I was going to find another way. And yeah. um, every single opportunity I think I've gotten at this point has been at least a partially a byproduct of me advocating for myself in some form. Um, and so... I think that was an incredibly valuable lesson I learned early on. And I mean, I look back now and it's like, I can't believe I was spending like my high school summers in the Red Sox clubhouse, yeah, like around crazy. those teams and you know, just learning what it was like to be a reporter and seeing guys like Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts, like establish themselves as superstars um, at the major league level. Like I met those guys when they were like 19, 20 years old and now like they're Mookie Betts and Xander. Bogus. Right, <laughs> right, right. It's well, and it's amazing to see sort of that growth and to get like I was talking about before with Sandy to get to kind of grow alongside these guys, but you got to do it from, from such a young age. And one of the other things that you mentioned was that you went out of your way to do as much feature writing as possible. Um, and I, I've noticed like you're someone who genuinely loves long form journalism. Um, I'm also someone who genuinely loves long form journalism. And I've been told that we're the ones killing long form journalism, like our generation killed long form journalism. So what is it to you that, that attracted you to that type of storytelling in particular when there are really all of these other options and ways to get yourself into sport as you probably saw from a young age? I think that for me, long form specifically, I really try to choose my spots. Yeah. Because it has to be a story compelling enough to demand someone's attention for four. Like there's an inherent arrogance, I think, to being 100%. like 100%. You, you guys, like, you got to sit down and carve out a 45 minutes to read my 5,000 words. Yeah. You know, the inherent ego and arrogance to feeling like you deserve to have your words read for that long and deserve to take up that. So I, I always want to make sure that like, if someone is clicking on one of my articles, I feel like I'm giving them enough back in return in exchange for their time, whether that's a laugh or, you know, a, a, a takeaway or um, a story that makes them feel better about their day or something, learning a life lesson about something that maybe I've learned through the reporting process. Um, and so uh, for me, I think it, you know, as, I've done like stuff on YouTube. I've done stuff on television. Like it is hard to capture the nuances of things. Um, or I think long form writing is the best way to capture the nuance of a lot of things because in TV, you're often restrained by time. There's only so much you can do. Uh, YouTube, you have unlimited time, but like I would sometimes, I mean, I think it's more efficient sometimes to read 4,000 words than sit down for a 45 minute YouTube video. I agree wholeheartedly. And so you got to choose the balance between all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I grew up reading Grantland. I grew up reading longform.org. I listened to the Longform podcast a ton in college. <laughs> um, Wright Thompson was someone who I really, really admired, um, you know, coming up in this industry. And um, he, he, I mean, he, he's, his writing was something that I really, really aspired to Mina Kimes and Papa Torre, like yep. were two writers. I like really, really loved, um, and, and really admired, you know, coming up. Um, I mean, there's so many amazing long form writers, um, right. who, who I just, I spend a ton of time reading because I just wanted to get better at storytelling because I think that that's fundamentally the core of everything that we do is trying to tell stories in a way that is compelling and can keep people's attention and also justify, 
you know, people's attention and, and making sure that they get something out of the experience too. Cause it's a two way street. Like, you know, I don't have this job without everyone who has spent time reading my stories or clicking yeah. on whatever or watching me on television. Like I'm in, I, I often feel like I'm trying to be in service of the reader or, or the viewer or whatever, because um, if they're going to choose to use their valuable free time to listen to something I say or read something I write, like I want to make sure that they get the most out of it. In particular, I know you got to do some storytelling in 2020 that I imagine was really impactful for you and that you were covering the KBO. Um, and at that time, I guess I kind of have two questions here, right? First, getting to share your own experience with Korean culture with the potentially new audience that, that was now tuning in for the first time to really anything you had to say on that. How fulfilling was that for you before I get to the second part of this question? It was incredibly fulfilling. I mean, it was one of those things where I felt like my life had been building up to a moment like mm. that, where... Uh, I, I was born in Seoul, South Korea. Like, you know, I, I'm an American citizen, but like, I was still born in Korea and there's a inherent tie that I feel whenever I go back there. Um, even though I feel like incredibly American, whenever I do go back there, like I went to, mm-hmm. uh, I, I was, I was missing a hamburger while I was in Korea. So I went to Shake Shack and it was really funny how the woman, the woman who's handing out menus there, she was handing out Korean menus to everyone. She saw me, just took a look at me, didn't hear me, and she handed me an, an English crazy. menu. Really? I was like, yeah, I was like, of course, you know. Wow. Like, of course. And wow. but that, that's a side point. Yeah. But like, you know, I remember um, in that moment, like that was the only sport happening. Like, you know, I was getting texts from like Boog Shambi about like how to pronounce things yeah. and you know why things are done X Y Z way in Korea and like. I've been to three, four KBO games in my life. Like I know what the experience is like, but it's not like I'm some sort of like encyclopedic expert on the history of the KBO. So for me, it was trying to learn things for myself to make sure I don't sound like an idiot when I go on air, but also like trying to make kind of the cross-cultural exchange of this kind of stuff um, accessible Mm -hmm. to as many people as possible. I mean, I feel like that's a lot of what, I've been trying to do for myself since I like became an American and like was going mm. to school while growing up in a Korean household is just trying to understand the different aspects of American culture, whether it's like, you know, white culture, black culture, like yeah. Hispanic, like Latin culture in America. Like it's just like everything I've been trying to understand. And so like, I, I feel pretty good about being able to explain in like pretty blank terms that anyone can understand. And so in many ways it felt like, I literally said in that moment, I was like, I literally think I'm the only person in this industry other than like Daniel Kim who can do this. You got, and yeah. I was like, I guess I'm here for this moment. So cool, I guess though. like I got to do as much as the best, best job as I can. Well, and to be able to step up in that moment, because, you know, on top of the pressure of everything that, that came with that, it was also the midst of a pretty freaking depressing time. Um, and so you were doing something that was providing joy and happiness for other people right like sports were fun. this distraction but right so how fun was that like how on top of there's already the cultural element there's already like i feel so honored to get to do this but to do that in the midst of that time like how how did that feel too because it must have been such a whirlwind i mean i know there's so many things that i look back on from from certain month periods in 2020 to 2021 like in the earlier stages of all of this where it's like whoa 
looking back at that almost feels like an out-of-body experience. So now to be in this stage now reflecting back, like as you look at that moment and knowing that, hey, I was here for this. There's like there's a reason why I ended up here. How how does that all feel sort of looking back with an eagle's eye view? I, don't, I actually haven't spent that much time reflecting on this. I mean, I think I understood abstractly that there was a level of pressure because it was the only thing that our ESPN was doing in that moment. Right. right. But I also think there's a level of things that are like, I kind of like the high wire act a little bit, like having, having that level of pressure and knowing that eyeballs are on you and knowing that you kind of have to nail it. I kind of enjoy that. I think, um, or something I have definitely been growing into a lot more the last couple of years. Uh, and so it's a level of like, all right, like it is what it is. And like, I'm just going to do the best that I can and be myself and hope for, you know, hope, hope it like it doesn't explode in my face. Um, I think, I mean, looking back, it was an incredibly fulfilling, it was an incredibly fulfilling experience um, mm-hmm. just to be able to feel like I can, I could share part of like who I am and my culture um, with another part of my culture. Like I felt like it was one of those things where it's like, this is a very uniquely Korean American experience that I'm going through right now. Um, and I think that going through that made me like being an outsider almost to both, both cultures, I think made me feel like I belonged in many ways for the first time. That's really cool. Like, I just think that that's really cool because like, like you articulated there, it's, it's an element of both being an insider and an outsider. And that part of it had to be again, super surreal and kind of an out of body experience, but all right, let's get back to some of the things that are going on currently in baseball. And then I will, uh, I will let you go. Um, MLB draft just happened. Um, couple of cool things in in regard to that um a couple of different storylines that just sort of stood out one all of the sons uh including jackson holiday and drew jones um man jackson holiday makes me feel like super duper oh my that's God, the first man. one right that's the first one but but before we get to that also i thought it was very cool four of the first five guys taken were black and all had been part of the mlb dream series um so not to make you pick one one or the other in terms of storylines you can touch on both if you'd like but just sort of in general thoughts on on those storylines in the mlb draft i think that dream series aspect is particularly interesting i'm actually yeah. gonna I'll be working on a story about I had a feeling. <laughs> um, yeah, just about the dream series. Cause I think it's it is very, very fascinating because it's one of those instances where like a lot of the times the things that like the diversity programs that the systems put it that the establishment, the system put in place don't work. Right. And the fact that this worked is great. Yeah. Like we should see more success stories like this. Um, like I know that MLB, and I've talked to p- officials over at MLB. Uh, about the you know the high number of black players, they're freaking out about it. You know right. they have been freaking out about it. And I think that this is one of those things where it's like having the investment in the RBI program in the inner cities, having investment where it's like all right, like making sure that these black players get a certain level of funding that like because of the way that the systems work in America, they maybe didn't get that funding. Mm-hmm. Like maybe giving them particular focus and trying to give them an advantage in this regard that is, you know, funded by Major League Baseball. Like that kind of stuff does pay off. It is it not works. the only solution to systemic racism in America. No. <laughs> but it is a little bit of a patchwork where you see the tangible results. Like it is hard to deny that like Drew Jones, Kamar Rocker, Tamar Johnson, Elijah Green, like, yes, there's a level of like privilege there where like Drew Jones, 
you know, Elijah Green, like those are guys who are kids of professional athletes. Correct. But the fact that there's programs in baseball focused on catering to black players in America, uh, it is something that is incredibly important for baseball and hopefully will encourage, you know, more young black baseball players across America to pursue this path and realize like you can make a lot of money in baseball. You know, it, it is a way out. It was very inspiring to see that the Dream Series actually was having tangible results. I think that's the part that was cool. And like you mentioned right off the bat, like, hey, there's this thing. It's not the solution to everything. But here in this specific league, we have something that is is paying off because we put this 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 organization into place. And I think that that's, that's exciting, certainly. Um, something else that's gone on this week is uh, the new Derek Jeter documentary, The Captain. You spoke to Derek Jeter yesterday, uh, yes. obviously around these parts uh, having to do with the Miami Marlins. Folks are are not so positive on Derek Jeter at the moment, but I'm going to just look at Derek Jeter, the baseball player. First, before I get to your conversation with him, I have to ask you how much you despised him growing up, because if you grew up a Red Sox fan, there was no way that you liked Derek Jeter. Oh, I mean, I did not like Derek <laughs> Jeter growing up. Um, I think my perspective on it has changed a lot. Sure. Uh, just working in the sports industry. Like I'm still a Red Sox fan. Right. Um, and I, I, every time I go to a Yankees game, like I still feel that like, Oh man, it's the Yankees, you know, like right. for, for such a long time, the association with the pinstripes and that logo was just yeah. like pure evil, the evil empire to me. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think I probably hated a rod more than I hated Jeter as a kid growing up. I think I always had like a level of respect towards you just because of the way that he carried himself and um, went about going about things. Uh, that that I that I did not hold towards a rod as a kid growing up, um, but yeah, I mean, I th- I think the documentary has been fascinating because everyone has this idea of who Derek Jeter is, mm-hmm. and it's one of the things I wanted to ask him about yesterday in our conversation, um, which I don't think is in- like archived anyone on Instagram, unfortunately. Huh. Um, I'm going to try to get the video and try to post it somewhere, but. No, I, was, I, I was curious to, to, to ask him about how he set his boundaries and why he set the boundaries that he way that he did. And he basically said, like, I wanted a very clear distinction between my professional life and my personal life. And I didn't want to let anyone cross me there. Yeah. Um, and I never wanted it to become a distraction. And there is an inherent level of public interest that comes with being the shortstop of the New York Yankees in you know, being as good as Derek Jeter is, as handsome as Derek Jeter is, like <laughs> people are going to want to pry as much as they can out of him in regards to that stuff. But he only let the public know what he wanted to let, why he wanted them to know. And I think that it's the reason why he was so boring in the media for such a long time. Right. And I think the entire documentary kind of recontextualizes all of his athlete cliche quotes, they actually come across as slightly more profound when you put them in the context of everything Jeter was going through and what he was learning and everything that his teammates saw him go through. Like when you have that extra context, it feels less like surface level. And it feels like, Oh, there's an actual like acquired life wisdom to all of this. Um, And I think like him being willing to reveal, you know, in the first episode last night, the struggles that he went through as a kid from a biracial family and how right. that put an immense amount of attention on him from a young age. And I think the subtle implication in, in the movie was how it prepared him for the New York City yep. market yep. was absolutely fascinating. 
Um, and I, I actually just watched the second episode uh, this morning, a screener of it. Um, it kind of expands a little bit more on his growing fame and attention and how mm. he, you know, definitely enjoyed parts of being famous, but also <laughs> didn't, didn't chomp off too much of the apple um, of being famous and made sure that he focused on his career. Uh, I'm really fat. Cause I, I, I think the image of Derek Jeter, who Derek Jeter actually is as a person is there is a gap between those two things. And I think that those move this movie, at least through the first two parts that I've seen. Uh, and I think the director, Randy Wilkins has mm-hmm. done an incredible job of kind of bridging together those two things and giving us a sense of like wh- who Derek Jeter actually is and why he kind of get, set a very strong boundary between who we, who, who he allowed us to see him as versus who he actually was you know, when he's behind closed doors. The thing that stood out to me was exactly what you mentioned. There was one moment where Jeter spoke about how growing up in a biracial family, he basically was always looking around for who was staring at him. There's trauma in always having to look around the room and see who's watching and be prepared for anything. And to sort of link those things into ultimately the person he became just to the front facing media in terms of not letting people in, giving the cliche answers, not wanting to sort of rock the boat becomes a fascinating link. Like I found that part of it to be a really interesting step toward learning more about this sort of enigma of a character, right? Yeah, I think the the sec the second kind of part of that that comes out in the second episode is how he deals with the rising fame of becoming the shortstop of the New York Yankees. Right. And how people around him change because of how they start to perceive him differently because he is superstar mm. shortstop based in the New York Yankees. Uh, it is really, really interesting. Um, and I think that it reveals a lot about just the interesting parts of being famous and how that not necessarily changes the famous person, but changes everyone around the famous yes. person uh, and, and their relationship to attention and money and power um, and how it, you know, this is actually something that Jeter told me yesterday in our interview was, you know, how, how that fame and attention affected his kind of day-to-day interactions. And he was like, you know, he basically said that he had to learn how to fail in front of a lot of people. And because he learned how to fail in front of a lot of people constantly, it made him especially present in day-to-day moments because he knew because he failed in front of everyone on a day-to-day basis, grounding out, striking out, whatever, he had to be extremely present with everyone else because he knew that everyone else could be going through their own moment of failure in in private. And I thought that that was such an insightful glimpse into just the human condition that I didn't necessarily expect to hear from Derek Jeter. Um, And it was clear that he had really reflected on the way that fame the fame changes people around you and the way that, um, you know, all of that affects the way you have to treat other people on a day-to-day basis. Man, I, I can't wait to watch the next episode because all of these elements of just sort of digging into a person, I find to be really interesting. And we got some of that with the last dance, obviously with, with Jordan, but, but this is something different. Like there is, there's an element to this that I find almost more intimate. Um, Yes, I agree because I think that Jordan had a level of, posturing about his bravado and the image that he wants to project 
Right, it's um, interesting that Jeter has that image already and is sort of like trying seemingly look he you know he's kind of part of this it. but basically trying to to break it down and show us like why it was like what why the armor is there and that kind of thing and i find that to be fascinating through a documentary well, well the thing that he said yesterday to me was that he was never trying to purposefully build an image right. it was just a byproduct of him setting boundaries with people and how they perceived how they projected their own insecurities or whatever onto him and it, you know the image that then was created around him as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, and and the fact that, I mean, it is so funny watching, seeing all the media members who were covering him, and it's like, oh, everybody went on to be major national media <laughs> member. Like, everybody covering that Yankees team went on to have these crazy careers. But let's move from a guy that gets talked about as a GOAT uh, to a guy that's actually the GOAT, Shohei Otani. Um, <laughs> I want to discuss his greatness for a second, and this will be the you last to sort take of a little bit of a shot. At had Jeter, to, had too. to, had had to on the way out. Hey, uh, this is coming from a guy who had a Jeter fathead on his like bedroom wall. Like I love Jeter. That's one of my. That's if not my favorite player ever. So I could take shots if I want to. I'll also call him. <laughs> I'll never let anybody call him an overrated shortstop ever. I'll never let it happen. Uh, but as we move to to Shohei Otani. Um, and this will be the last sort of broad topic before I do some sort of rapid fire stuff and, and let you go. I promise. We were lucky enough down here to to witness his greatness uh, a couple of weeks ago. Seven innings, ten strikeouts, go ahead RBIs, and a stolen base. Literally had never been done in the major league history. He's doing that what feels like every single time he steps on a baseball field. And the stats, uh, it, despite how crazy they are, feel like it doesn't even really do it justice. Can you put Shohei Otani's greatness in proper perspective for the listening audience? I, I've been saying this for the last year, but like we, I, I think we have moved past the Babe Ruth comparisons with Otani because Otani is singular. Yep, he's the guy that we're going to be talking about eighty years from now because I think that his impact on the game we haven't even begun to see the tip of the iceberg yet because there are kids growing up watching Shohei Otani who are going to grow up wanting to be two way players. And because of social media and the way that like NIL works now, like they might have the leverage to force teams to let them be two-way players. But, you know, I talked to Alex Verdugo on the Red Sox about this at one point. You know, he said today that if he was coming out of high school, you know, he threw left-handed on the mound 90 miles per hour and was also like, you know, starting outfielder in baseball. Right. He said that if he was coming up today, he'd be wanting to be like a back-end reliever and also, you know, a starting outfielder. I could very plausibly see that happening. Like, you know, as crazy as some of the Otani stats are, I think they'll probably be less crazy with more time. Once it evolves. Once it evolves and we start to see kind of the more progressive teams trying to develop more two-way players. Well, it's sort of like like the Steph Curry effect, right? Like where Steph was breaking all these records and now there's guys that are all not necessarily breaking his records, but they're right there with him on some of these guys who have the Trey Youngs of the world who have come into the league as sort of the knockoff version of what Steph was doing. Right. So, like, I think we're going to see, like, Walmart Shoei Otani right. in the next, like, two decades. But it's – and I think it's going to be really hard. I mean, this is going to – this is, we're eventually going to be the old heads talking to the to the youths about yeah, how incredible Shoei Otani was and how unprecedented it was. And they'll be like, well, like – Everybody you know, pitches and hits now. Shoei Otani third is – also, like managing the team while he's pitching and hitting, like this is <laughs> this is not that impressive, right. you know. So, like, all of this is going to come back around. But I really think that, like, in professional sports, his peers aren't any baseball players. It's like it's like Bo Jackson, Babe Ruth, like a lot of these American sports icons. Um, those are the people that we're going to be talking about Shohei Otani with because it it doesn't even matter 
I mean, we're going to remember him forever at this point, but it almost doesn't matter from a legacy standpoint, what he does for the rest of his career. Like this already is so unprecedented that we're going to be talking about him forever. Like maybe he'll be in the baseball hall of fame one day. Right. Like it does like, I think the baseball hall of fame is kind of like, it, I yeah, kind of shrug sure, my whatever. shoulders at it. His legend like, is bigger. It's his, it's his legend is way bigger than the baseball hall of fame because he's already accomplished something being in that tier of athlete from mm-hmm. a legendary, like the, the fact that like other baseball players put him on a pedestal, right. like he's achieved that level of legendary status that no one achieves. Like there's fewer of those than baseball hall of famers. Like, would you rather be a hall of famer? Or would you rather be Bo Jackson? I think I would rather be Bo Jackson. Of course I'd rather be Bo Jackson. I I've been trying to say to people like, Something that's crazy to think about is just Shohei Otani just objectively in terms of what his skills are in these two separate things. Like, he's a better multi-sport athlete than Deion Sanders. Like, that's how I've been trying to make people understand it is that his dominance as a pitcher and his dominance as a hitter make him a tremendous, essentially at this point with the way that baseball is, multi-sport athlete. Those are two different things, you know? And to show up and have that level of skill to where he would be an all-star MVP candidate if he was just a hitter, and he's an all-star MVP candidate as a pitcher, and as both, he's a legend. And to see him doing these things, it's just, it's as fun as anything that exists in sports. Like, that's what I've been trying to make people understand is just, this is Tuning in to watch Shohei Otani play baseball is as much fun as you can have in sports right now. It's it's amazing. Like there's going to be child child like kids books written about Shohei Otani yep. as like a legend for next 50, 50 years. When they know, inevitably like- uh, remake the Sandlot for Disney Plus, uh, they'll be making it about Shohei Otani instead of Babe Ruth. And you know what's also fascinating about him tying him into the, the conversation we had about Jeter? We don't know anything about him. Exactly. But that's also part of what makes him cool, right? Like there's there is an element of there is an element of the enigma to the star that I don't know the answer, right? Because for me as baseball guy, I love that there's the enigma to the star. But it would probably be greater to make him a but he's already such a worldwide star, but to make him a greater like American star, quote unquote, if we got to know more and more about him. But there's an element of the like aloof. I don't know that much. And yet he's not aloof. Like he goes on the baseball field and he he's constantly, ha- you know, has faces that turn into memes and seems to be just having a blast. So it's not buttoned up. It's just more. We don't know anything about him. It's partially a language barrier, right? Like there's there's so many. But even the Japanese that, media doesn't know that much about right. him either. He seems to be just a dude who who is this. He's a legend. Like it's cool. We're, that's what we're watching. Like that's what I keep trying to make people understand. There was a bump in attendance for the game that he was here on a Tuesday night or Wednesday night, and and that meant something. You know, like that means something when when you can see that across sports. So I'm I'm excited to hopefully one day see our our Walmart <laughs> versions of him. Well, the thing is, I think Shoei Otani has determined that us mere mortals don't deserve. Yeah, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to know. We don't need. We, we don't deserve to know everything about his. his and you know what? Life, I agree you know? with him. I agree. We shouldn't know. He's he's too much. I again, like I'm saying, I love that there's this legend that I don't know anything about, and I'm like, I don't understand how you exist in sports. But okay, I'm gonna throw you a few MLB gameplay hypotheticals, and your response is going to be, "Hey, this is a home run." Or this is a strikeout, huh? You see what I did there? Uh, home run if I could find some way to get you on board. So, first one. 
uh, they're doing the home run derby for extra innings in the all-star game as the theoretical rule. If we applied that to actual regular season gameplay, home run or strikeout? Uh, I like that home run. I think that would be really, really fun. Me too. I totally agree with you. Okay, cool. Home run. It would just be better for the game, right? If we had a home run derby on the back end. Yeah, I think it also might just end things faster too. Yeah, that part would be really, really nice instead of having to stay for so much longer. That also might be a media complaint too, where yes. like us media members it's, are a lot of games and it's just like... It's a very specific media member complaint, but it's also if you were someone sitting at home and you got a notification, hey, the home run derby between the Diamondbacks and the Royals is about to start, like I might not be watching that entire regular season game, but I'm going to go ahead and tune in on whatever streaming service or whatever network that's on to go check it out uh topic number two we've seen players we'll see it in the all-star game guys that get mic'd up while they're on the field do you love it home run same all right same more of it please please we should have guys mic'd up during the game all game every game right like i don't understand why this isn't something make it a reality show sports is already reality television for men lean lean all the way in yep you you and i are on the same page here okay this one might get a little I'm starting to get a little more out there with these. Those those okay. were the mainstream ones. Uh, okay. This one, I don't know if this was a Stugatz idea or if this is my idea or oh, if man, this Stugatz is somebody else's. Idea. A lazy river in place of the warning track. At I think all that is a MLB Stugatz fields. idea. I think it's a Stugatz idea, but what I want is to put fans in little rafts inside that lazy river that is going around... Uh, the warning track. So you've got fans that are there potentially with players diving into the the lazy river or they're catching home runs or if it's a ground rule, you know, it goes into the lazy river. The thing I would worry about from a liability standpoint is like a guy like breaking their neck. Yeah. Yeah. Nah, they'll be fine. There could be a warning track for the water. It's a sand. It's a beach. So they, they're they're at least aware of what's going on. So they're not just running in and falling off Is it like a gradual a transition or is it yeah. like a drop off? That's what I'm saying. Like maybe it's a gradual. Well, but it needs to be a drop off so that nobody's like falling into like a one foot pool and snapping their neck. I guess this may practica- practically this doesn't work all that well. But I do just so deeply love the idea of fans just sort of circling around. I like the trampoline. Bill, Billy, Billy Gill's trampoline. Yeah, his idea trampoline better. idea is better. All right. All right. So this is a strikeout. I'm glad to know it. Uh, <laughs> one that uh, actually I'll give my younger brother Jason a shout out here. One that, that he and I were discussing a couple days ago is baseball would be infinitely more exciting if every single inning Billy Hamilton was just standing on first base. <laughs> so if we just had Bill, uh, clone Billy Hamilton and put Billy Hamilton on every single team, you just start Billy Hamilton on first base at the beginning of every inning. What do you think? Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. like, I, I guess it doesn't hurt. Yeah, it makes it more. Uh, our thought process being to me right now, there's actually nothing more exciting in baseball than a stolen base because except that it except the teams hate it because it's not like mathematically. This is my sound. point. Enough of the math. Enough, enough of enough of making baseball efficient. I don't even mean it in terms of like similarly to how we can acknowledge that at times basketball actually aesthetically, even though the three pointer for a while was like really, really, really exciting. Once you realize like, oh, it's just going to be teams taking 53s a game or layups and the teams that are bad at it, it's not aesthetically pleasing basketball. There are enough teams after the first eight to 10 lineups across baseball that by trying to hit for as much power and walk as much and replicate what some of those top tier teams are doing, it is 
maybe at times not as strong of a product. And so in turn, what I'm saying is you put a fast guy on first base, that changes everything. Because some teams, look, some teams will just still try to hit home runs. Billy Hamilton will stand on first base the entire time and won't make a difference. But if there's a double in the gap, you know he's scoring. And if there's a single down the line, you know he might be scoring. I'm just saying it creates some more excitement right off the bat. Putting a fast guy on first base, let's change the rules forever. I just like stolen bases. Like, yeah. I think having the dynamic of fast guys on base is really, really fun for the sport. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think that there are things that I like about today's game, but I do really miss kind of the hit and run, like yeah. seeing a little bit more action on the field. So I, I, I'll, I'll, I'm listening. I think I'm in on this. All right, there's two strikes on that one. That's what we'll say. Is it's not quite a homer. We're in the middle of the at bat, and we'll just let it go for a little bit. Uh, and this is this is by far the craziest suggestion that I have. Um, Specialization. So. so specialization has obviously taken over. It has made baseball that much more difficult for hitters, right? You've got all of these guys throwing 100 miles an hour off the 60 foot six inch mound, and a lot of people have talked about, oh, do you lower the mound more? Do you move the mound back? We're we're it's an evolution. Instead, four strikes. Let's add an extra strike to the game. It's not going to change the pace all that much. Because you're just adding another 20 seconds for maybe one more pitch. But you're giving hitters an opportunity to even up. And it's a chance for there to be more offense. What do you think about changing the entire American zeitgeist of three strikes and you're out? So take me out to the ball game. It's one, two, two three, four three. strikes, you're out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just ruin the American zeitgeist completely and make it four strikes. This is a step too far. I would just rather move the mound back. <laughs> I'm just thinking about pitcher injuries and these guys that have been grow- growing up on that 60 foot mound. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to protect the arms, baby. That's I, all I'm I doing. Think, I think that'll take a year for guys to get used to it, and then they'll be used to it. I think we'll right. just move the mound back. All right. I think that that's probably a much more logical and and not completely insane solution to the idea I came up with yesterday, I like d- one or, in the morning as I was prepping or, for this. <laughs> or okay, we move the mound closer. And just make it impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then the, these guys, uh, that, that would make this game uh, literally impossible. I don't even make it the 50 foot mound that you had when you were like 11 people, years old. And I think travel people ball. will adjust to it. You think, I don't think anybody will adjust to it. I think that that would end baseball as we know. I think okay. you're underestimating the human spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Okay. This is going to end with uh, technically a 3 2 and then one on baseball. So, first, uh, across Major League Baseball, we haven't really done a ton of national conversations. We did the Home Run Derby. We did Shohei Otani. But three MLB storylines that have caught your eye that our listening base should be paying attention to in, in sort of the national landscape. Oh, man. I mean, I'm going to be really East Coast by Yeah, do here, it. Probably. Uh, it, we're East Coasters. It's fine. So uh, I think that the Red Sox situation is really weird because Chris Sale has kind of been a wash since he signed the big contract. Mm-hmm. Heim Bloom's kind of in a position where the team's good ish, <laughs> but not good enough. And the top end of their farm system hasn't really come through with Jaron Duran. Like Tristan Casas has been injured. You know, Jeter Downs has not been good the last two years. He just came up. Um, Red Sox fans are really impatient and they traded Mookie Betts. Like they, you know, it seems like they might lose Xander. They're probably going to lose Xander Bogarts after the season. Like, those are two of the most beloved Red Sox in the last like 50 years. Like the Red Sox have already kind of been in a position where they have to play defense. And 
the success last year was really, really great, but this was supposed to be a step forward. And right now they're hovering around 500 and yeah. it looks even worse than it, they were last year. Like this might be a position where like Heim is on the hot seat next year, especially if, if Xander leaves and like, it's not really fair to him because the ownership group kind of put him in a position where he had to train Mookie, but also like he didn't have to <laughs> like lowball Xander Bogarts no. in this way. Um, it's, it's just like a lot of we, like it, a lot of moving parts, a lot, a lot of, of moving, moving parts. parts. Like they should probably should have spent more money on the bullpen, especially because they have money. You know, you're going in the season, depending on Hansel Robles to be a big reliever. And he, you know, he's DFA. Like, yeah, that's very weird. Um, I'm curious to see what happens with the White Sox. Like, sure. Of course. They were my World Series pick and they're currently in third place in the central right now. Right. Uh, which doesn't make any like makes no sense. They're one of the most talented teams in the sport. Like yeah. you look at the town up and down that roster and that lineup and that rotation. Like that should be a much better team than this is right now. Um it might be like needing to change the voice in that in that clubhouse. People that have been is very, asking very for that for a long time. Right. And so I'm curious to see what will happen there because I think that team still has a lot of potential with just all the young stars in that roster. Um, I guess Soto is a big one. Like, yep. are they going to trade him this year? There's time left on that contract. If he's traded out West, like that'll change the dynamic of the entire league. For real. Um, they probably don't want to train to the East, um, you know, to like the Mets or, or something. So like Soto's going to become the first, I think the first half billion dollar player ever. Um, I think he, I mean, if, if I was the Nationals, I probably would have offered him a higher average annual salary and probably fewer years. Um, but those are the three big ones for me, I think right now. All right, we move from three to two. Two MLB predictions as we go forward in this season. Two predictions for me. They could be as hot takey or non-hot takey as you'd like. Uh, let's see. I think that Fernando Tatis Jr. is going to change the dynamic of the playoffs when he comes back. Love that. Because I think the Padres are set up to buy at the deadline. I think they kind of have to buy at the mm-hmm. deadline because of the pressure on Preller. Um but that team is really, really good. I mean, they're deep. Um, so Hos- talented. Like, you know, I, 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 Hosmer is having a relatively good year for like an, him. He, I mean, he's still not okay living up to that contract. Since, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, Machado has been fantastic. Like, Cronenworth has been good. Jerkson Profar has been good. You know, Hassan Kim has been pretty good as well. Like, that rotation has been very good. Joe Musgrove has been fantastic this year. You know, I, you, I think there's still room to grow, too, between, like, Sean Manaya. You know, Mackenzie Mackenzie Gore is a guy um, who, you know, I think could get better as, as we go on in the year. Um, you know, Blake Snell is a guy who's in Cy Young contention a couple of years ago. Like, he's been not good this year, but, like, he has been very good in the past. Like, yeah. his situation's very weird, but, like, so that's a really talented roster. And, like, you're still adding Fernando Tatis Jr. to it. I think they're in a really, really good spot. That's probably not the hottest take. Um, <laughs> it's still a prediction. I didn't ask. I said it could be as hot takey or not hot takey as you'd like. Let's see. I still believe in the Rays. Like, I Ooh, love the Rays. Okay, that's a fun one. I like, like that. I, I really love the Rays. Like, that roster is just so deep up and down. Um, like, I really think in the same way that Julio Rodriguez is going to potentially take this team over the top. Like, Wander is so good when he's playing. Mm. He's, been, he, he's been dealing with injury issues um, the last couple months. Um, but if he's healthy, like, 
you look at that rotation, like Shane McClanahan has been fantastic this year. Like that, that team is really, really deep and they're deep every single year. Like it's hard to count them out. And they Um, always seem to find a way to add really productive players at the deadline. Like they They always, always even guys that you don't anticipate being that effective. And then all of a sudden they're a key piece of getting them back into the postseason. So they're one of those organizations. Yeah, for real. Um, And then last thing I do have one thing that you'd like to see happen at the trade deadline, whether that's for the Marlins or otherwise. Uh, Doesn't have to be Marlins related, obviously. Well, I want to see like, I want to see a Herschel Walker, like one Soto trade. Just a probably, massive, just like something bananas. Yeah, you know? um, I've look. I'm not. I, I'm gonna sit here and and tr- it's not gonna happen. But I'm gonna throw out T. Hmm. I wonder why the Marlins that have this insane depth in their pitching just took nine pitchers in the MLB draft. Maybe putting together the crazy Juan Soto package. Hmm. Why is that? Going full Brian Windhorst here. No, I uh, <laughs> yeah would would love to see would love to see obviously a crazy offer there. But seriously, seeing one of those like a team gives up their top eight, the eight of their top twenty prospects, and you know a whole bunch of other pieces to go get Juan Soto because he's worth it. Like this is the most uh, most valuable trade piece, most valuable trade piece available in sports. Get Kevin Durant out of here, bro. Like this is much bigger deal a 23 year old who is one of the best left-handed hitters that we can see right now right is am i crazy to say that that the most valuable trade piece you could have because of age is I, that right would you trade juan soto for kevin durant <laughs> i still think it's kevin durant really like really and it has more to do it, is it because of the individual performance of baseball is that yes. that's why right so it's yes. it's it's one play we see in la Otani and Trout doesn't mean anything. Yes. So having Soto can only mean so much. And Durant is like Durant. It is means everything. Durant. It changes the franchise I mean, completely. Yes. But I, oh gosh, that's a that's a tough one. I guess I hadn't even thought of it as a debate until I just got here now. But yeah, we can <laughs> throw that on. We'll I'm throw it on first take. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll tell I'll tell Tony Real to throw that in as a question. Yeah, let Re- let Reality know. Uh, let let Josh know. I'm I'm trying to still produce the show. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, man, that's that's amazing. All right, well, uh, that's everything that I got for you, June. Dude, you like, thank you so much. This is a super long conversation. I took so much of your time right here in the middle of your All Star break. So, um, I'm appreciative of it. Where should I be directing everyone to go find your work if they don't already know where to find it? Uh, follow me on Twitter uh, at June Lee, Instagram at June, and on TikTok at I am June Lee. Well, there you go. We got all three all three places there for social, all different handles. So that's perfect. I wish they were all the same handle, but you know, you take what you can get. June Lee, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join me today on Miami Mic'd Up. It's much appreciated. Um, and hopefully we'll talk again soon at some point. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. Thank you for listening to Bally Sports Florida's Miami Mic'd Up with me, Jeremy Taché. And a special thank you to our national sponsor in Southeast Toyota. Visit your local Toyota dealers or toyota.com today and take advantage of the amazing deals on their full line of vehicles. No matter your destination, Toyota goes with you. Toyota, let's go places.